Hey everyone, welcome back to the Transsection Podcast and in this episode we en- interview, not interview, we interview, that sounds dodgy doesn't it, interview, my mind honestly, gutter. Anyway, we interview uh, Stephanie Wiggins. Stephanie is Canadian and non-binary and a sex educator and it's been, a, I don't know about you, but it's been quite a long time since I did uh attended sex education as a child and I was both thrilled and slightly uncomfortable (laughs) at how much sex education has changed to now. I mean I'm reassured it's great and I think it's it's really healthy. The way that Stephanie explains these things is um, very down to earth, very matter of fact and actually I recognise my own shame about bodies and things like that that I must have a little bit because Stephanie was using um, biologically correct um, words to describe these different situations and especially like teaching children about their own bodies and what what it's actually called and things like that and uh, as Stephanie was uh, describing these things and what we might say to young children Um, in an age-appropriate way I noticed myself recoil a bit and I was like oh that's interesting so uh, I I hope that this new approach and this sort of intersectional inclusive very broad and thorough approach to sex education uh, throughout the ages of young people um, I'm really I really have faith that this this kind of thing will really change lives and help people to be happier, to be more empowered um, with their bodies and to be more educated about um, consent and relationships and and what healthy versions of those those things look like because, you know, consent was not a conversation that I'd even borne witness to until I was in my 20s, which is far too late in my experience. You know, it caused a lot of issues that I've I've covered in in past uh, podcasts. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really, I feel very positive about this conversation, but I warn you if, if you're squeamish and you're, you've got your own kind of shame about bodies and things, you may have a moment when you're like, wow, wow, this is a lot. So, um, brace yourself, but it's very, very good. I I think the way that Stephanie explains these things is fascinating and so important as well. Like really, really important. And I think that it's so important that so for, for many of us adults, we're hearing these things for the first time because it's better late than never. <laughs> and I think that with more information and, and arming ourselves with these things, it can really make us realise some things that we might not have done before. And uh, I think that's really powerful. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you haven't signed up to our mailing list yet, go to mixharrishill.com forward slash transaction. There's a green box, you put your name and your email in there and then that's it and we'll send you one email a week to let you know about uh, podcast releases and also anything else that we're doing. Uh, I put everything in just the one email a week so it's sort of in a newsletter kind of form so we're not spamming you all the time. But it's good. There's other things in there that we don't talk about so much, including um, if you haven't got yours yet and you haven't heard about it yet, there is a Trans Plus Gender Identity, a guide for beginners, which is a free 10 page PDF. The first page is my face. 
so it's not too much to read uh, if you're not into that. It's very digestible, that was the idea. Um, it's free, you can go and get your own copy, you can take it into work or it'll help you to uh, learn about trans identities and non-binary identities and things like that. So you can better, maybe you can better understand yourself or maybe you're supporting somebody like maybe there's a kid in your family or, excuse me, hiccups, or maybe, uh, you know, for work or for clients or whatever, um, maybe you're a medical person or a therapist. So go and get your free copy. There's a masterclass and out that runs for an hour. You can watch it at your leisure whenever you like and uh, it takes you through the booklet. The idea is that these two things will, the book and the masterclass, will always be free for those who really need that information and, uh, yeah, want to understand more, maybe need a bit of help, and it, it's there, it's there. So, yeah, I think it will be cool. The more and more people that sort of understand different uh, different identities and realities and things like that, I think the deeper connections we can have with people, and it won't feel so awkward because when you don't know something and you're scared of putting your foot in it, it's kind of awkward and uh, a bit of a killjoy, if you ask me. And I think we'd be better off if we've got a bit of a grounding in these things, then we could have a bit more confidence about talking to people and making friends and all of those nice things that, of course, I think we all want more of, really. So it's there. Anyway, enjoy this episode and uh, I'll see you on the other side. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the Transsection Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, very. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm recording today from uh, my friend's flat in Hemel Hempstead, Hertfordshire in the UK. And uh, Steph, whereabouts are you from? Um, I'm here in British Columbia, Canada. Cool. So we're quite, quite a few hours apart. You're yeah. In the future, I think. Yes, I'm eight hours in the future, so um, <laughs> I can let you know about some things that are, are coming your way. You've got eight hours to prepare, so... I appreciate good. it. Yeah, anytime, anytime. <laughs> I also have a lot of friends in uh, in Australia, so they can tell me and I can tell you, and then that's like, that's like 16 hours ahead for you. Whoa, maybe I'll win the lottery. I was just thinking that. <laughs> I don't know why this isn't a thing, why people don't do this more often. I don't know. It's just silly. It's just silly. <laughs> <laughs> so Steph, tell us what you do for your job. Yeah, so um, I'm a sexual health consent, um, like 2S LGBTQ educator. And uh, so I go into classrooms and teach about body science and sex ed to kids. Uh, I'm working on workshops for parents about consent and about how human development works and how we, with that knowledge, we can be better parents and better adults in children's lives. Mm. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's, I've got a lot of things 
that I can do. And for the last 12 years, I've also been an early childhood educator, which means that I work with children from zero to five. Um, that's something that I'm like I'm leaving the field, I'm not going to be doing that anymore, but it's definitely going to inform uh, the sex ed that I do, especially with young children and families. Yeah. Sure, mm-hmm. that's really cool. So I know that a lot of people who are conservative or maybe not very aware might panic at the idea of young children having sex education, but I mean, you're not teaching five-year-olds what a blowjob is, right? No, definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just explain a little bit about what like how your stuff is age appropriate and what what we're wanting children to learn when they're so young absolutely yeah so um i think it's like in a succinct way we've all been raised to believe that like talking about sex is this event it's like a one-time thing and it's super uncomfortable and you know um nobody's enjoying it and it's kind of traumatic and everything and really good sex ed is layered and so when I go into a classroom of kindergartners for example or if I'm teaching parents about how to teach consent from birth or how to be an askable adult in their children's lives it looks like starting from the very foundational information of like of of science like anatomically correct words so we're we're not using euphemisms or cutesy words for body parts um and we're working hard to not bring shame into those moments. And so, you know, very confidently saying uh, vulva and penis and scrotum and anus and not saying, you know, like, you know, I'm going to wipe your bum or I'm going to, um, you know, change your your diaper and uh, I'm going to, I don't know, you know. Yeah. All, all those things that we say are like cutesy words uh, that don't they don't protect our kids and they they do us all a disservice and they they seed those that shame early Mm. on yeah yeah for sure and and I guess aside from the the shame as well like um we need to all have a shared language around that uh Mm -hmm this part of life because if if a child particularly unfortunately if a child's like in danger or um in a compromised situation that you want them to be able to tell you what's happened and you need to kind of guarantee that we're going to understand what that child is telling us yeah exactly it's it's really the biggest preventative measure against childhood abuse is clear um anatomical words that are being used like you're saying so that there's a shared language and by doing that it it also shows our kids that we are safe people to come and talk to and that they're not going to get in trouble and that we're going to listen to them and believe them and these are all things that stem from the issues of being afraid to talk about bodies in a um, nonchalant way really in a way that um, 
doesn't seem scary or gross or um, full of judgment. And yeah, so, you know, if, if kids have that, then they're going to come to you and feel safe to tell you like, I felt weird and this happened or, you know, this situation happened and um, here's where I was touched on my body or whatever. And if those words aren't clear, then that kid could be going over and over again to different adults. And if they don't share that language, then that adult isn't going to understand and they're probably going to end up being ignored. And yeah, and then that abuse can continue. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. I, um, I think I mentioned to you the other day when we sort of had our sort of hello and get to know you meeting, that um there was there's a lot of conversation around consent going on and how we're um helping our children to understand consent and what and the language that we're using and the rules that we're explaining mm -hmm. uh, um, to children about their own autonomy and uh consent and what's appropriate and um and I saw, I, I said this to you before, but I'd seen something on Facebook where someone had kind of couldn't quite believe that um, this topic, that like they couldn't make the connection between consent in a very sort of non-sexual way from early on um, mm -hmm. being uh, ignored and how that could possibly lead to problems as the children get older so I mean I know what I think but um, <laughs> I'm curious to know from your perspective from your professional perspective like how you might broach that subject with somebody that they've said like um, you know tickling kids even after they've asked you to stop because that happened to me a lot as a child um, mm. particularly um, male members of my family they just thought it was funny and I I do feel very strongly and, and from the people that I've spoke to have been in similar situations that that really did affect my sense of belonging to myself versus mm -hmm. other people having entitlement to do what they wanted and just mm -hmm. to accept that I wasn't going to be listened to. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, how how would you kind of explain that to somebody who is ignorant and can't quite make that connection between early sort of non-sexual consent to problems like sort of growing up right yeah so I think it that I would try and frame it from a place of um, disempowerment mm -hmm. and how if we don't um, if we don't hear children's nose and stops and that we just continue doing whatever it is that we want to do like if we use tickling as um as an example, which I think is actually a, a wonderful way to teach consent to kids. Um, you know, if we don't listen to a child stop and know in a tickling situation when they're very young, the idea of an adult being allowed to do whatever they want to that child's body and that they're feelings and their no is not respected that it creates this foundational idea that my body doesn't belong to me and that um, my voice doesn't matter and my opinion doesn't matter and 
on the flip side of that, having a kid who has foundational knowledge of knowing that when I say stop, my, my feelings will be heard and this adult or whomever will stop when I say stop, that means that that kid, that's their expectation of everybody. And so going into the world as they grow up, when there is um, a violation or there is consent being breached, that will be an abnormal situation for that child. And so they will see it for what it is instead of, like many of us, having this almost being like gaslighting ourselves in our brains and saying, oh, well, they didn't really mean that or, you know, or they're just ha having fun or maybe I really do want this. And um, instead of being sure of ourselves and um, having deep respect for ourselves, that instead we would make excuses for that person's mm. um, behavior, um, maybe um, feel like hitting that person or screaming or doing whatever it is that you need to do to get out of that situation that that's like too much you're being too much you're being um unreasonable mm -hmm. all these kinds of things that i think that we tell kids and especially um children who are being raised in a feminine framework um to be quiet to not make a fuss um to be to just smile and bear it and that um yeah it does it does definitely set a child up for being more likely to being abused and i think that part of that also goes back to being an askable adult and if you are the parent and you are constantly like breaching your child's consent mm. they are going to know that you are an adult that um may make excuses for other adults like if they don't have if they have a gray and blurry idea of what consent even is because you've never taught them clear consent um the likelihood that they're going to go to you in the first place is low because that is not a clear that there's no clear boundaries of what consent is and what the expectations of others should be mm. and also that if you just keep on telling them that their feelings don't matter by your actions and um and by your words then why would they want to come to you in the first place like kids right. are smart they're freaking brilliant before like the age of five we are making more neural pathways in our brain and learning more than we do for the rest of our lives and so it's like kids are actually geniuses that's how our bodies as humans are set up to be and we are constantly teaching children through our actions, through our relationships with others around them, and the way that we model um, how to be in relationship, how to ask for consent, how to 
to give consent, how to negotiate, like they pick all of that up there. They are sponges mm. and, um, yeah, it's really, really important. And I can understand why people, I mean, people get triggered by the word rape, right? Even people who um, I would call like rape, rape apologists, right? Where they're like, you're being sensationalist about this. And it's like, it's not sensationalist because we're talking about foundational um development of a human and how they believe the world to be because we only have our own perception and our own our own life to kind of look at other things and that's why a lot of us who do have abuse in our lives it may take well into our teenagehood or our adulthood for somebody else or to go to to college or something and to find out that like actually the family dynamic that you grew up having is not normal and that um and that you were you were abused and um that's because we think that what's happening to us is normal because we have nothing else to compare it to mm. yeah thank you for sharing that that makes a lot of sense i mean i think i think for me a lot um a lot of these conversations I, I, I can clearly identify from from my own experience but I think as well um, I've met a lot of people and I think even in just what I do and the way that I am I, I have deep conversations with people all the time and I think being an introvert those are my favorite ones if someone's asking me like what's the weather like or what are you having for dinner I just die a bit inside so <laughs> small talks not not my forte mm-hmm. um, and in talking to people deeply so often, and a lot of the time it can be strangers, um, and certainly many of the people that I, I know offline or um, have a, a, an existing relationship with, we speak about things like this all the time and people will, will often say like, I was brought up in this way and it affected me in this way. So it boggles my mind sometimes that um, these conversations around consent could be considered anything other than completely logical mm-hmm. and I do think things are getting better like I've, I've got lots I mean I'm in my early 30s now so I've got a lot of friends who are parents now mm-hmm. and they often talk about the no pants rule and things like that I don't know the ins and outs of that but I understand that it's about <laughs> I don't know if I'm familiar with the no pants rule. <laughs> I don't know how they describe it but they refer to it so often and I think oh I'm so glad that like the parents of, of my generation who are now having children of their own are familiar with that and, and they're like oh yeah that's a really important thing to say hmm. whereas um if I've been in the company of, of people possibly who aren't parents yet or maybe they're sort of um quite a bit older maybe like my parents age mm-hmm. I think they just don't you know they often are of a generation where they were told to kind of shut up and get on with it and mm-hmm. so when we're having these conversations they're they're like oh why is that important can't we just get on with things the way they are and I, mm-hmm. I have to have to remember I'm I can't just be like listen man I'm, I'm really traumatized <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> you can't say that 
because people you know especially the people who like you were saying like uh, an adult that's safe to ask i still find myself in that role a little bit sometimes when mm-hmm. i hear an older adult saying like why on earth is this important and i already know that because they've said that they're so unaware that they mm-hmm. become to me an older adult that i can't speak talk to totally yeah um and I also think like if you don't have kids anymore and you're not you're not parenting or maybe you don't have kids at all and your world is maybe very much like work and then you're the friends at your age like I guess these conversations don't come up very much and what they see is pop- possibly like sensationalist press and articles and things. Yeah I feel like for those people like I've had I can't believe this is even a debate anymore but I have had um debates or discussions or whatever with friends even that are not parents and stuff about like why is spanking bad you know like you know I was spanked I'm fine blah 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 and um and just like I think one of the things that I just keep going back to and I would go back to with some of these people that you're mentioning too is it's like listen like we have had 30 years of like of studies in psychology and brain development we've had all all of these new technologies come out where we can like look at the brain and how it works and we have a a way more broad and deep understanding of human development and um and we know from these 30 years that what we were doing 30 years ago was harmful to people who were being spanked or harmful to people who were um you know like sent to their room or not given food or like whatever these things that were the norm for parenting 30 years ago it's bullshit if you think that we should still be using what we were doing 30 years ago like do you do you believe in science like at all because we have 30 years worth of new science you know so for me it's kind it kind of just goes back to like I get it but at the same time um you either believe in science or you don't and if you don't believe in science then I'm not probably gonna wait waste my breath either because we're not going to agree on a lot of things. (laughs) It's really interesting because you say like you just believe in science or you don't. However, um, you know, there's lots of science behind like emotional well-being, including like uh, trans and non-binary identities and sort of how, in what conditions we thrive and in what conditions we're suffering and things like that, that have been studied and so often and again like um i'm coming across lots of people who really cling on to kind of this idea of science being very black and white and being very helping uh life to kind of be predictable or controlled Mm -hmm. and so often i find the people who who kind of cling to science almost as their kind of security blanket will Mm -hmm. often then not be on board with all of the studies that support the more kind of like what we call like the sort of soft skills or Mm -hmm. um 
the social side of things, the psychological side of things. And uh, I, some, yeah, I, I would like to think that science will eventually kind of back up what we're all kind of saying anyway, either within our sort of minority communities or just from a place of emotional intelligence or emotional awareness. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know about you, but I sometimes get kind of fed up when things get brought back to science because that science isn't there to get me out of bed in the morning. You know, like mm -hmm. I do that. I, I have to feel a certain way about my day in order to want to get up and do it. Um, mm -hmm. That science isn't there really like when I'm interacting with my family or my friends. And like I really like science. If it wasn't for science, I'd be dead like so many times already. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, me too. So, uh, you know, I, I really believe in it. But sometimes I, I wonder if science is put ahead of the real sort of human price of these things like mm -hmm. how you know how and and sometimes i think if people are already biased against kind of like things like psychological wellness and um affirming people's identity and experiences and people being heard and and understood and belonging and all that kind of thing I wonder if they're not even going to get it if we say, listen, there are studies. Like, first of all, they don't believe in science. They just use it for their own sense of security and predictability, which, of course, the universe doesn't do predictability. <laughs> and also, I sometimes yeah. wonder if we're not, they're not going to be reached anyway. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I yeah. sometimes. I think it has a lot to do with what the topic is too. Like I think talking about, you know, why we don't spank is a great, is a, um, a great topic to point back to science because there's good science that's supporting that. But I definitely agree. Like when it comes to trans binary issues there, the science is, is, um, behind. There's a lot of, um, conflicting things happening in in the science community I think around um trans studies and um you know I don't I, um queer sex ed are you familiar with their podcast no. oh my goodness oh my goodness you should listen to queer sex ed um these two they they like really deep dive into um like the history of transmedicalism and stuff and so they they talk about all of that and it's it's like the science is there but then people want to refute the science and that's fine and understandable I guess I also think that when it comes to people trying to debate people's identities that the only way that that actually gets broken down is by um is by having relationships with trans and non-binary people right and that that's um it humanizes this these ideas that they have been holding and they realize that like trans and non-binary people are people and um and that like we um you know, wash our dishes and uh, make food. And it's like, not 
this weird I don't know I'm not really quite yes. sure what what people think but like they have these weird ideas and I think it just humanizes all of us um but then there's some things some topics that you can't really humanize right like how do you humanize um spanking or how do you humanize rape culture like I guess you could have people come and talk about their experiences and in that way um you could you could form relationship between um somebody who is skeptical and the person who has experience but that that's um that's more challenging I think than being able to give studies and everything but you're right like I mean if there's there are going back to studies there's studies that talks about like like if a person isn't on the fence about a topic and they're like firmly in the no camp it doesn't matter what kind of information you give them they're still going to be they're just going to dig their heels in um harder and that if the only people that are open to being swayed if you will are the people that are already on the fence about the topic they're open to it so mm -hmm. yeah yeah i agree with that and i think people often say things about science and i'm like you know humans created science right so far, as far as we know, no other science exists in the universe. We've, we've done it for our, for our own, <clears throat> I mean, in part for our own entertainment, but mm -hmm. a lot of it because, um, you know, we want to, we want to be creative. Mm -hmm. We want to make things and fly and talk to each other mm -hmm. on Zoom calls. And, um, you know, it's all kind of for our own benefit and our own gain. Uh, and I think that's often my bottom line that if science isn't sort of making things better, then, you know, it's just, it, it's kind of a, an abuse of something just like anything else. And ultimately, um, I do, you know, science is meant to be impartial, but science is most of the time only ever carried out, thought about, hypothesized about by humans. Mm -hmm. so I'm like, it doesn't matter how, how unbiased you think you could be. Mm -hmm. You're still a human doing science and come up with an idea and you want to see if that works or mm -hmm. if you can reproduce your results repeatedly and things like that. And I'm like, it's still, it's still flawed. It's still not going to answer every single question that we have. And mm -hmm. also, you know, studies and science takes um, so much time, you know, we don't have sort of two or three years to wait on some big project that's going to potentially for instance, um, support like a minority group in that time, they're going to suffer and people are going to die. Mm. Well, that was really morbid. Wasn't it? <laughs> but, um, yeah. And I just, I don't know. I, I think science is great. I just, I think that it's become often where people are kind of leaving their hats or kind of, they're making it their home. And I think it avoids a lot of vulnerability. And I think, that a lot of what I talk about and a lot of what you talk about requires a kind of vulnerability to um, answer issues now. Mm -hmm. And also th those studies are fine, but it needs people like you to go into schools and actually apply that science and, and mm -hmm. talk to people about the real effects. Like the science can exist, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> that's good that's good <laughs> so um 
So apart from work, um, what, what's it like being non-binary in Canada for you? Oh, um, well, I live in a lovely little bubble of a town and we have, um, we have a group that does, they're called anchors and they are specifically for folks that live with HIV and AIDS but it's this really cool community group that does a lot of education. We have like a, um, a, a safe injection site and a bunch of things, but they also do sex ed um, in the schools to an extent. And a friend of mine, Milo, they are our trans um, go-to person for trans health and um, counseling and stuff like that in town. And so we are a hub, I think, kind of like a, a, a rural go-to place for a lot of trans folks because we have really amazing support. We have a really amazing doctor in town who's like, does all the trans care. And um, so I think that I'm like super privileged um, where I live. Uh, I'm not super out as non-binary. Um, it's something that's new for me. I've only really given myself permission to kind of look at my gender identity in the last two years. And it's something that I've been very upfront about in the last year. But so it's like, it's hard to kind of speak for it. And I think that non-binary is such a huge variation right like it's one of our umbrella terms for so many things and um i always get clocked as female which is fine um you know there are some traits that i really um feminine traits that i really like love like i'm still a mom even though i'm non-binary and um but yeah i think that like i live in a fairly safe community I think it varies from place to place. Like BC, I think is bigger than probably the whole of the UK. Um, and so like, you know, going up north to uh, in Northern BC, I know that there's a lot more struggles for the queer community up there. And then, you know, if, if I go west and go to Vancouver, there, you know, I'm jealous of how much awesomeness that's going on, but that's because it's a, a very large, city mm -hmm. I don't, yeah. I'm not sure if I just answered your question or not, but yeah <laughs> no, it's, good. it's good you gave a you gave a less good example and a more good example so yeah. <laughs> I thought you yeah. framed it very well <laughs> yeah I, I I love that I live um at the moment I'm living with my parents and they live on a road between a large village and a tiny village and then we've got 15 minutes either direction like major mm -hmm towns mm -hmm. um but there are a lot of con more conservative supporters um def definitely around um where i live um although plenty of liberals as well it's probably it's probably sort of evenly balanced although the town uh, the village that i technically actually live in is um very white very middle class mm -hmm. there are there are some sort of um, council housing 
uh, but a lot of that's been bought up by the tenants so it's become private housing again and mm. it's uh yeah i mean i i'm mixed i'm indian and white but because i'm so pale i think i'm just red as white anyway um mm -hmm. but i mean i'm over six feet tall and often have like mad hair and wear like sort of piratey looking clothes so <laughs> I'm all ready. I'm all ready. And, you know, I get ready as, as female a lot of the time. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not too bad. It's not too bad, but it's definitely, um, yeah, I miss, I miss the variety and, and the, um, diversity of, of people and especially like, um, a queer community. I'm actually thinking of setting up my own my own thing although because we're, we're possibly heading for lockdown too so i mean that's not going to happen in person anytime soon yeah that makes it challenging yeah yeah for sure i mean um a couple of years ago the um uh, doctor of neuroscience that i mentioned to you that, that i dated uh most nice. of their friends were were queer like there's mm -hmm. um a gay guy and a bunch of trans women and there was just it was lovely and, and we would like we hung out a few times and it was just the first time in my life that I've been in like a kind of queer trans only bubble. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, where I need some more of that, please. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it feels so safe and easy, you know, when you, when you're with that kind of family, mm. I feel that for sure. Yeah. yeah but... I've, I've, I get little glimpse of, of that. Um, when we have pride or when we put on a when I put on an event or something for pride in town and yeah just looking around and being like everybody's queer this is amazing yeah, yeah it feels really yeah, uh, really really special have you seen the social dilemma yet on Netflix I've been trying to to watch it so no I haven't yet okay what do you what do you want to say about it well the upshot of it or the, the the takeaways that i have from it um firstly is that the algorithm uh to keep engagement up encourages division and opposites and arguments basically and they'll show yeah, yeah. uh so i mean firstly i kind of knew that already because i mean yeah it's it's you know you look at how you interact with people in normal life and then you go on facebook and you maybe are having a conversation in a public space or even on your own page um or your own profile with people who possibly don't know you very well so maybe they've read something a certain way um and i just you know i'm on social media and i always think to myself i've never had this many arguments in offline in my life so it's got to be <laughs> partly to do with totally. <laughs> an online platform and the other the other take and and to the um to the point that um apparently there was um facebook has been used a lot to really negatively influence uh, a lot of political situations because i mean it's uh and i think i can't remember the details i'm not i don't have a great head for details but there was one point where it was thought to have incited some really serious political issues i think it was a vote or something um ultimately it was actually um quite worrying and mm. since that's come out lots of 
uh, on that they've got a lot of like uh, ex-employees of the larger platforms yeah. who have said like the number of things that they've seen go on behind closed doors and a number mm -hmm. of things that they've been personally responsible for like that's why they've left because they've realized like how unmoderated it is and how easy it is to kind of corrupt platforms like that Hmm. Um, and they were saying that yeah like basically ev every interaction and it can even detect when you're emotionally like unstable if you're depressed it, uh, things like that um, it also learns like if you pause and look at a picture even if you don't interact with it it'll still recognize that you were interested enough to oh wow yeah you you pause long enough to actually really look at it and stuff wow yeah so it's learning from you all the time and because we the users of the platforms particularly um facebook i think this mm -hmm. is what the thing is said i'm just i'm just paraphrasing what i've learned uh is that basically the the users the people who are not actually paying any money to facebook we we are the product that's the idea and basically yeah. they're their real customers are the people who are paying the money to advertise and mm -hmm. therefore they want to keep you like um glued in for longer so you'll get notifications apparently if certain things pop up if that they know will get a good response from you even if it's mm -hmm. a negative one if you haven't looked for a certain amount of time, like it will learn the things that will like hook you back in and keep you using it for hours longer than you maybe would do right. already. So on and so forth. And uh, one of my friends said to me recently, she, she said, you have to watch this. Like you spend a lot of time yeah. online and you really need to watch this and learn about how you're spending your time and how it could actually be affecting you. You're, you're not aware. Mm hmm. And she kind of alluded to the to the fact that, well, uh, to her, her opinion or her take was that uh, I, I spent too much time on social media. Now, that's probably true to a point, but I was mm -hmm. also thinking about it. So, um, you know, I like to kind of reevaluate things and try not to get too annoyed uh, about people having opinions that I didn't necessarily ask for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I thought about it. I thought if I didn't, if I didn't have these platforms and um, wasn't passionate about um, spreading sort of education and, and encouraging people to get on and understand each other, what would my, my life be like? And I, I thought to myself, like, I just don't have those, those connections to my right. community offline in real life. And mm pandemic aside like I don't even know what that would look like I I'm not related to anyone that I, I know of or there's nobody I've never I don't think I've ever come across an obviously trans person in my village which has got like I think the last time I looked it was it was several thousand people I can't remember it was under 20,000 maybe it's mm -hmm. I don't know I'll find out later doesn't matter um but yeah, like I have, I have no idea how close I am to any of the, those people. And I think like if you're a different ethnicity, you're, unless you've been adopted or something, or you don't have any family left, then most of the time you're related to somebody from your minority. Right. But um, being queer or trans, you're possibly the only one in your circle at some point. Yes. And I was thinking a lot about how... Uh, 
we we are developing this language in our sort of trans plus community across many different countries i mean that's how you and i connected was was on facebook mm-hmm. and i think a lot about this and i i said to my my friend earlier um whose house i'm at i was like do you think i'm part of a cult <laughs> <laughs> and i was really questioning it and i was like this is mad and and he was like well aren't we all aren't we all part we're all part of something and and those of us who are in whatever kind of membership it is mm-hmm. you know we understand the ways uh that we speak and the things that we collectively might believe mm-hmm. and um so i was just asking this question you know in my mind of like how um how our community is kind of supporting each other and how we're forming and how we're finding community, but it's on uh, platforms, multiple platforms that have questionable ethics. Mm-hmm. But yet without it, we, we, we would find it much more difficult to affect change. Yeah. And also to find community and, and just a little safe haven if we're living very, in very kind of cis-het uh, environments and stuff. Totally. Yeah, I think I think that the community at large, like the queer community, that there's a lot of us who feel isolated and that then the subset of the trans plus community, like even more so. And yeah, like I I am blessed. I do have uh, a handful of non-binary and trans friends and I have a partner who's a trans woman and um but the truth is that like online I have a a greater variety I get to be um, a support system for people um being on social media during COVID has been really interesting and seeing how COVID has affected people, especially like trans folks in like a positive way and in a negative way, Um, even just with mask wearing. I can think of this one um, really wonderful trans person on one of the groups that I'm on and um, they've been able to like dress in gender a gender affirming way and go out during the pandemic because their mask hides um features that make them feel dysphoric and and make them um be misgendered and it's beautiful because every time that they post as themselves they have like hundreds of folks who are like you look so beautiful it's so cool to watch you like growing and and it's like I don't know it's very special and I can I mean I'm looking forward to watching the social dilemma a long time ago I realized that I was being taken advantage of by like Google and all these things and um and I made a conscious choice to be like for me as far as I can see at this point maybe I'll feel differently after I watch this but that the benefits outweigh the possible negative things that could happen from being on Facebook from 
you know, being a part of Instagram from having whatever, like seven Gmail emails or whatever it is. And um, because I think that one of the things I've learned in my life is that taking care of myself is the only way that I can take care of others and be a good parent and be a good employee and all these other kinds of things. And part of that is um, finding community and feeling like I belong mm. yeah definitely I think I think it's the same for me as well yeah so Stephanie if you wanted um if we've got parents listening who are new to this idea of consent what do you think are some of the uh, like just a couple or a few like key takeaways that you would want them to get from listening to you speaking about consent yeah um i mean it's of course different for every age so i'm just gonna kind of start from the beginning um like i was saying earlier children are tiny geniuses right from the moment of birth they are always listening um they are constantly learning and so we need to do our very best to be modeling for our children how we expect other people to treat them because they learn how they should be spoken to and how they should be treated and how to be respectful and treat others by how we act in front of our children and what we say in front of our children. On a similar vein, children start to develop language around anywhere between like about 12 months to 18 months is when we're starting to see like words and and all of that. And um, I think a lot of us adults have this misinformed idea that children don't understand before they speak, that we um, can, should use like baby talk, um, like baby words and things like that to children because they're small and that they're I don't know, that they're stupid and they don't understand. And that's not true. Um, children don't speak until that age only because of muscle development in their throat and their mouth and their tongue. Um, if, if that development happened earlier on, your child would be speaking, you know, within a couple of weeks of being born because they're already processing all that information. So with that understanding in mind, talking in front of your child like they're not there is disrespectful. And it's another thing that we often do. And I think that it, it creates anxiety, it creates um, disempowerment in children, because how rude is it as an adult to have another adult be like, yeah, Stephanie, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, um, excuse me, I'm right here. Like, you can't talk to me about me like that. That's really rude. Yet we do this constantly to children and it's 
it's something that we don't think about. And um, I think one of the last things that I would talk about with consent is that um, in addition to being fully cognizant and very sharp and understanding of what's going on, children's brains when they are young, especially under three, it takes them a lot longer for their brain to process what they've heard and then to process it in their brain and to to understand what's about to happen. And so as an early childhood educator in my classrooms, my expectation of educators was that especially for children who were pre-verbal, which mean, meaning before they were able to speak, that we tell children what's going to happen to them um, before we do that thing. So whether that's giving a five minute warning before we change activities, you know, in five minutes, we're going to leave and get in the car to go to school or in five minutes, we're going to clean up. Um, that gives a child the ability to understand what's going to happen before it happens because even as adults like you know you're engaged in something and somebody's like no we have to leave right now let's go let's go like that's just even thinking about that gives me anxiety where I it's would like furniture if someone did that yeah <laughs> yeah right um and so like these sorts of things give children like help children understand that they are valued what their work which for children is play literally play is their work that is how they work through everything that they see everything that happens to them that is through their play so you know valuing that work that children are doing by by letting them know we're not gonna in a five minutes we're gonna stop playing and we're gonna have dinner or whatever it might be um that we need to keep in mind that for under the under threes, it can take 10 to 15 seconds to process information. So often I see parents trying and doing a great job of, you know, um, giving choices or um, telling a child what's going to happen before it happens and all sorts of things, but they don't give that child enough time to process what just happened. So if I was in a classroom with under threes and I said, okay, um, tiny baby, I'm going to pick you up now and take you to the bathroom and change your diaper, or we're going to go change your diaper. I would wait 10 seconds at least. And that feels like an impossibly long time for an adult, but, but that allows that child to understand what you just said and then prepare themselves and let me tell you in in our classroom when we implemented this and we started telling kids okay here's this cloth that I have for you you just finished eating so I'm gonna wipe your face and you wait that 10 seconds children will offer their face to you they will offer their hands to you because they've had this opportunity to a be a part of the of what is about to happen and be be respected you know like 
you're respecting the fact that their brain just processes slower than than ours and that you want them to be a part of this um i think that that it's like this idea that it's funny or that it's just the way that things are that when we wipe children's noses that they're gonna like have a tantrum and like lose it about it and that oh that's just being a kid and it's like no it's the fact that you just shove this this napkin in their face and you're wiping their nose and they have no idea this is about to happen you're touching their body without asking them um you know like honestly if somebody came up to me with a wet cloth and just like shoved it in my face and started wiping my face i would be upset because i punched them right in the throat i would not like it <laughs> me too me too and like, what the fuck are you doing you know, i was really i was um because you told me that that 10 to 15 second rule when we first talked yes and since then i saw my niece who's 11 months old and she hates having her face touched and yeah. um i sort of was discussing this with um you're like Sorry, my friends just come in. Uh, I'll just carry on. Um, yeah, so we were talking about this rule. So I thought I was with my niece, who's eleven months, and I thought, I wonder if I wonder like if I could try this out and see what happens. And she at the moment loves mud and stones, and she's eating like she's in the garden. And she'll get a handful of mud, and she'll be like, I like put it in her mouth, and it will be stuck under her fingernails all, and she just eats it, and she's having a great time. Yes. Um, <laughs> and. She's also taken to putting stones in her mouth as well. So obviously we're like, you know, so, yes. I, so I didn't panic. Like I just put my hand in front of her mouth and I was like, can you spit that out please? And she doesn't, she's had it. She's got a few words. She's got like mum and dad and hi. She said hello to me the other day when I was singing the Teletubby song to her. I went say hello. And she went hello. And I was like, Ooh, oh my God. <laughs> so freaky when someone tiny is talking to you. Totally. But anyway. I put my hand, I, I was trying what you said. I said, spit it out, please. And you could see her. She heard what I said. She was processing and then she did it. I didn't have to like put my fingers in her mouth or anything. She just did it. And I was like, and I was like, oh, this is so much fun. And, yeah. and I did, I know I'm starting to wonder because she hates having her nappy changed, but, um, and you know, when I've done it, I'm like, we're going to change your nappy now. And I'll say it several times as like, before I pick her up and then as we're walking over and I'm like, we're just going to do this. It'll be quick. Everything's fine. And she still uh, kicks up a fuss about it. She doesn't like mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sort of standing there questioning it. Does she just not like it? Cause she loves free movement and she doesn't want to have to be static. And she just, you know, it's, it's nothing to do with anything that we're doing or, mm -hmm. you know, um maybe that that dialogue like maybe that hasn't happened enough so now she's kind of automatically like oh i don't like this because right. of the thing so maybe she's learned to not like it so mm -hmm. i don't i've spoken to um uh my therapist about that i was like what's the rule and she said some kids it doesn't matter what you do they just they don't want to be there they want to be playing and doing other mm -hmm. things so it's you're totally not necessarily true. like violating anybody's boundaries it might just be that that's not what she wants to be doing right now she'd be quite happy to sit in her own <laughs> wet nappy for another I hour do have a couple of suggestions yeah um for that is i don't know what like where you change where she gets changed is and stuff but like 
if you could make it accessible for her to get there, like with stairs or something, that that can be a big piece, which is like the autonomy to get there and put themselves there is sometimes helpful. Okay. Um, I don't know what kind of dialogue happens during um, diaper change and stuff, but like, you know, that um, going back to the sex ed piece, like that is the time to start practicing um, you know, for your sister and, and everybody, like, you know, to start saying, like, okay, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of poop in your vulva, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna separate your labia and wipe this poop and stuff, and it's, like, for some people, it's, like, you want me to say what? But, like, how else is this child going to learn these things? I actually, that was my moment um, as a teen, was I a teen? No, I think I was like 13. Yeah, I was like 13 or 14. And my aunt had twins and already had another child who was like under two. And so she really needed people to come and um, support her when the babies were first born. And she's a registered nurse and um, still very like Christian uh, family. But I was flabbergasted because at that time in my life, nobody had ever talked to me about my body. I didn't know any of the words for my body because that's how I was raised. Um, and I remember very vividly during a diaper change, um, being there with my aunt and she heard the baby um, was doing what, what many babies do when the diaper comes off and was like, touching her naked body because it's always closed and it feels nice and etc etc and so she's she's touching her own body and my and my aunt is going yeah that's that's your vulva and now you're touching your labia and all this stuff and I was just like what is going on like what are you saying like first of all I didn't know those words myself and second of all I was like why would anybody be saying this and now of course because of who I am, I understand how incredibly important it is. Um, because you're a what? For Show so us many... a t-shirt. Show us a t-shirt. Oh. You're a sex geek. I'm a sex geek. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who aren't watching the video, uh, Steph's wearing a red shirt that just says in big capital letters, sex geek. Especially, yeah. especially for this recording. I'm especially for this recording. It's actually, it's my, uh, one of my favorite sex educators. It's uh, his shirt, Reed Mahalko. If you don't know Reed, um, he's somebody to definitely read up on. Ha <laughs> ha, read about Reed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's really important. And diaper changing is, uh, an, is the, an opportunity we have to teach kids about normalizing bodies, normalizing using words and um like destigmatizing the idea of um feeling pleasure in our body because like even in in the in utero there are instances of um people touching their own bodies um their genitals and stuff and that that's just a very super normal part of being a human being and that we shouldn't shame our kids for doing things that, that feel good. I think that um, that's a whole nother uh, episode in and of itself, but I think that as adults, we often 
can't imagine masturbation not being sexualized. And what I mean by that is that, like, as adults, if we're masturbating, we're probably, like, thinking about a sexy person or a sexy, like, interaction or whatever. And there's, like, it's sexual because we're thinking about others or we're thinking about a situation that is sexual, but kids are not doing that thinking of other people. Like, they're not they haven't gotten to a point in their human development that that they are sexual towards others. They're literally, like, we are all pleasure-seeking people. That's why we like to wrap ourselves up in blankets and drink our tea when it's cold outside and things like that. Like, that feels good to do. And it's the same for kids, right? Is like, they are touching themselves it's like a neurological like it's just a feedback thing right my nerves are doing this to my brain that's it yeah i mean i don't see how it's i mean i understand why it's different it's because because we've been raised in a shame society but like nobody shames a kid for like petting their face or twirling their hair or um you know, like having a blanket and they, and, and they like to touch it because it feels so soft. And it's like, it's honestly just like a sensory um, input thing. And for kids, like before the age of like, probably nine, it's not sexual. It's just, honestly, it feels good to do this. So I do it just like chewing on something or picking my nose whatever it is that kids do and they love it and um but it's us adults who like I don't know try and um make it something that it's not and and put adult expectations on something that's just like honestly yeah. human behavior mm-hmm. so so what kind of boundaries do we teach kids about that because um I'm close to several people who've been in early child uh care and stuff like that Mm-hmm. and um david they described like telling the kids like that's okay to do but we do it on our own um mm-hmm. you know we can go to our bedroom and do that or the bathroom and that's fine and mm-hmm. uh so i don't know like what's your take on that like what boundaries do we introduce to kids around that sort of thing yeah that's like the that's really it is that um you know talking about the fact that like most people do this like I want to um you know create space for people who are asexual right like some people may never masturbate and that's totally fine um and normal and a lot of people do masturbate and so like to be able to say if you can like oh this you know I I do this too and it feels really nice Um, but the thing that is, is that we have to do it by ourselves in our room. It's not something that we do in front of other people. Um, and so like, just to encourage that kid to understand, um, the social norms, because it's the same, it's the same thing, like not to draw it back, but back to nose picking, right? Like, it's like, honestly, there's nothing wrong with picking your nose and but but we have this social stigma around it and um and so it's like if you have a if if your butt is itchy or like your or you got to pick your nose or something like it's not okay to just do that in the in the aisle at the grocery store when everybody's around or whatever like it's it it 
it grosses people out and it's because of our social expectations of one another and I know that and masturbation is like I think is different because it is sexualized and because it has to do with genitals um but in in a social idea like we learn those social cues um, and so we have to teach kids the social cues too. And if we can just normalize it by saying, you know, um, lots of people do this or most people do this and like, I bet it feels really good. And it's something that we do in our rooms with the door closed or in the bathroom with the door closed and just like really driving it home that this is a thing that we're we're not supposed to do in front of other people but to try and normalize it so that that shame isn't there it's just an understanding it's that just private it's just private yeah that's really. cool mm -hmm. yeah that's really good uh thanks for sharing that and, and explaining a little bit more about that um is there are there any kind of resources or anything that you want to point people towards um or maybe like you're welcome to plug yourself. <laughs> plug there... myself. I was going to. I am going to plug myself a little bit. Um. Uh. I mean, a because you know, please employ me. <laughs> but also uh, because my website has really great resources, and um, I've made resources for parents, for adults, um, for teens who are looking for resources for themselves for folks with disabilities. Um, and I do have an LGBTQ uh, resource page, but at the moment it, it doesn't have any resources on it. It's kind of something that I didn't have time to finish, um, but I will, I'm getting on it. Um, and so that's a good place to look. It's very Canadian based, but the, um, What's but the information is like good. What's Pardon? your website called? My website is becomingeducation.ca. Nice. Becomingeducation.ca. Yeah. My business is Becoming Education and Advocacy. And um, yeah, so that's a really good resource. There's um, for parents, there's a, actually, I have it over here, I think. Yeah, it's a book called Talk Sex Today. Like, really amazing. Hold on, sorry. Oh, I'm gonna grab it. Um, and it's a Canadian sex educator um, and another Canadian sex educator. So, oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Um, so this is Talk Sex Today. And uh, so this is Meg Hickling. She's um, like the grandmother of sex education in um in Canada and she started the first like kids body science and so this is broken down by age it talks about how to talk to kids about sex that are like in kindergarten and then it goes all up to teenagehood and um it's it's really it's a super great resource for parents um and and honestly any adults who are um want to be an askable adult in their kids lives mm -hmm. and um uh, i feel like there's other ones ooh ooh um for adults if you haven't read come as you are i highly recommend come as you are it 
breaks down how we physiologically and psychologically how we are sexual beings. It's aimed at cis female sexuality, but it's based on um, real studies, huh, going back to science, but real studies uh, uh, out of the Kinsey Institute and other sex sexology institutes um, to just talk about like and and honestly like take pull apart our ideas of like what is normal, you know how how often should I be becoming um, feeling sexual um, and just like breaking apart how we get turned on and how that's different than how the media and society expects us to and how a lot of our ideas around sexuality are coming from this cis male centric um, framework of you should always be ready for sex all the time and that you should just you know be ready to jump with two feet right in and that if you aren't that you're somehow broken mm. and um i think do i have that book around yeah i do hold on i'm gonna just show them all okay <laughs> <laughs> stephanie's show and tell of the best books to learn about sex consent and uh, child development So then this is Come As You Are, and it's by Emily Nagotsky, and she's a doctor of sexology. Yeah. Um, yeah, just like so, so, so good and laid out in a way that each, each chapter has like a little bit of homework for you to do and to kind of like bring everything that the chapter has talked about and and really individualize it for yourself and understand your own um the your own way of being and she just is so great about driving home over and over again like that you are normal and the way that your body works is normal and the way that you have sex is normal and that she just wants to just like rip apart um yeah all of these ideas so yeah Highly yeah, that's really good. I think uh, I'm glad for things like that. And uh, I mean, I'm not a sex educator, but I have done workshops in, in uh, secondary schools here. Mm -hmm. And one of the main things that I've said to people that it, I feel is, I mean, I go there to talk about gender identity, but I do talk to them about sort of the expectations that mm -hmm. society and possibly even our own families have of us, even if they've not explicitly said it. And one of the things that I brought up so often in these workshops, I was like, just in case nobody tells you, if you're never interested in sex or you're not motivated by sex or you don't ever really want to have it, like, that's really okay. You don't have to, you mm -hmm. know? And um, I think there's still, uh, even in conversations now that, that I think are, are very open, there's still this thing of like, you probably will have sex eventually. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sex will happen to you. 
<laughs> and uh you know it, it was something that i you know i just thought it was a rite of passage i just thought it was something that's going to happen and it was only when i was i think i was about 27 that i found out about being demisexual because so many of my friends and partners would like look at someone and be like oh, i i'd shag them and i was like how do you know you've just yeah, seen yeah. them one time i don't understand and they're like well it's just how i feel and i was like what already yeah <laughs> like, and then eventually i found sort of the the word that describes me like it does happen but only sort of when i'm emotionally intimate with somebody mm -hmm. and then and then i'm like oh yeah maybe and then i think about it but the rest of the time it just doesn't exist for me at all mm -hmm. and um i wondered do you do you bring up that kind of thing when talking to people about like you don't have to do this and it's not like because i think i think about um you know the fact that you said you know when we're younger we might do like do these things just um like masturbation and stuff purely for like a sensory reason mm -hmm. but i imagine for a lot of people and uh, maybe even um asexual people that maybe that just continues maybe it just never does turn sexual or maybe it is mm -hmm. some people only a sensory thing yeah, um, I think it's super important to be queering the sex ed that I give. And so um, reminding people that a asexual and aromantic and demisexual people um, are valid and that like having um, the, not, I shouldn't even say the absence, like not wanting to have sex or not wanting to be in a relationship or you know only wanting to have sex with yourself are perfectly normal and valid things to be and that also like that there are people that will love you and will want to be with you in the spaces that you have for people to be in mm. so like I think that sometimes people are being told this idea that like, oh, if you never want to date, if you only want to have friendships, if you um, do want to date, but like sex, like, you know, penis and vagina sex or penetrative sex is off the table. Um, or that if you don't want to jump into bed the first time you have uh, a date you know for like for like demisexual folks that like I want everybody like that to know that there are people out there that want that too and mm -hmm. that like will will be that person that you want or not right like um and this kind of goes back to something that I've been trying to teach people about especially folks in in um, heterosexual society and stuff that like we make jokes about how long the LGBTQ plus um, acronym is and sometimes people are like well why do we need that and blah 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 and it's like it's for these reasons right is that I've been non-binary my entire life but I didn't have those words up until about five years ago and um, that doesn't mean that I'm some sort of um, 
millennial snowflake who feels like I need to have um, a label for myself. It, it literally means that there's finally a word for, for to identify who I am. And that helps me find community that helps me um, define myself for others. It, it helps me educate others about um, queer community. And so some folks, even in the queer community, feel somehow threatened by the, by the idea that the acronym keeps expanding. And I just want to encourage those people to recognize that it's actually really healthy because, you know, back in the 80s, even, you could be, you know, um, a, a butch dyke, you could be a femme lesbian, you could be um, a femme gay man, you could be, um, you know, like a, a, a butch gay man, or you could be um, transsexual, which is not a word that we use anymore, transgender is what we say now. But like, those were your categories. You had five categories and, and like four of those were like on the binary of like, you know, you're a lesbian or you're gay and that's it. And I think that it's so important that we've come past that because many of us don't fall in those categories and many of us don't want to ID that way. And I'm sure that even back then that there were lots and lots of people who took on those identities because they were the only choices and not yeah. because it felt good for them. Yeah, I agree. And I sometimes wonder like about these people who get, who get worried or frustrated with so many words. I wonder if they, they imagine that there's like a word farm somewhere. These, these words are very difficult to farm and we only get so many a year and they're like, man, you've just taken up all the, the rare words that we've harvested, there's there's not a lot to go around. Like we've we've got a word shortage. Like you're taking, a trip. <laughs> and I'm like it's fine. Did you also know? Like, have you ever read a dictionary? I fucking haven't. Mostly <laughs> when I was a kid, I looked at dictionary words that were rude, and I laughed. Well, obviously, like in the context of what we're speaking about, it's not rude. It's totally fine. But you know, like nine year old me was like giggling with my mates, look like ha oh, penis, and yeah. you know, just being silly children and um but I've never actually read a dictionary back to front and like mm -hmm. those other words existing and me not not knowing what they are or what it means like I'm still fine it's all okay and yeah. <laughs> like you don't have to know every word I think people I don't know if maybe they're a little bit like anxious about putting a foot in it in it or saying the wrong thing or or they're just kind of or maybe like they've got good intentions, but the actual hard work that goes into being intersectional is that, you know, they're looking for an end point, aren't they? They're like, oh, surely, surely I've learned enough by now. This is exhausting. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. listen, I mean, I hear you, but also like blame, blame the people who've kind of set up this, this false idea that everything's very simple everything's very predictable like it's really limited you know you've got like you're saying like one of two choices and uh yeah easy easy don't don't worry don't think about it anymore just follow the script man like it'll be fine <laughs> and uh i sort of i sort of understand because i only came to the kind of trans plus world at the age of 26 and before that like 
I had no idea what anyone's talking about. I was, I, w- I took the piss out of the trans woman I knew actually a couple of times, um, which obviously like I feel bad about. Well, yeah, I, I do feel guilty about now. And I've, I'm, you know, have changed my approach to these things um, somewhat selfishly, I guess it would be honest to say, because, you know, this, I've realized this affects me. So now I'm invested. So I kind of don't, I don't begrudge people that feeling of like, oh my God, there's so much to learn. I'm like, I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think the difference is if it doesn't affect you, like it's a privilege to be able to put that learning away for a little bit and think about mm-hmm. something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about this, you know, because of our conversation earlier about like the online space and finding community because I don't have that option. You know, the, the world I exist in is, is very much does not reflect me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have the option of putting these things down, not for very long anyway, you know, like, like you were saying, like some people like non-binary and like trans plus community, we're not happening on a cloud somewhere, like as an abstract concept, like literally like we're making a sandwich at lunchtime, you know, some of us like you are going to pick the kids up from school or something we're we're doing Mm. the grocery shopping and you know washing our pants like Mm -hmm. just standard sort of everyday average people and we're everywhere like it's Mm -hmm. it's too late so i like those memes of like have you seen those memes of like the gay agenda and it's just like you know have breakfast (laughs) like (laughs) you know take a shower um uh you know do fruit food prep or whatever it is and it's just like yeah that's the gay agenda like be a freaking human being yeah you know um advocate for human our human rights and others human rights like that's on the list be gay is on the list but like (laughs) as far as like what the feminist or the gay agenda is it's like it's just like everybody else like we don't do we don't do anything special like my my house is a disaster it looks like any other single parent's house like i don't know i don't know what to say like what do you think just don't tell them about the ritual sacrifice (laughs) no i i stopped doing that a long time ago (laughs) (laughs) there's that meme that always goes around and it's a picture of wind turbines and it's something like just taking the piss out you know the one i'm talking about where there was some really ridiculous, I think it was a US headline saying that um, people are putting low, uh, people are putting some sort of chemical into the wind to make people gay or something. And it had a yeah, yeah. turbines and everyone was taking the piss. Like, you know, uh, people were putting something in the wind to try and make, make everyone homosexual and someone was like oh my god who told and the last person went i bet it was dave and everyone everyone yeah. like, oh, for god's sake dave <laughs> <laughs> yeah because there's a rainbow it's like all the wind turbines and then there's like a rainbow that's yeah. being being cast yeah yeah it's true i mean i think if i had an agenda it would be is it bedtime yet that's pretty much mine <laughs> Oh my or god, sleep. I or love what's sleep. for breakfast? I literally, when I go to bed, I think about breakfast. I think if if uh, rights wasn't so important and necessary, if someone was like, what's, what's your purpose in life? I'd be like, probably breakfast. <laughs> Maybe you're actually a hobbit and not... I'm a hobbit in a giant's <laughs> body. <laughs> you're like, first breakfast, second breakfast. Oh my god, yeah. a non-binary hobbit could be a nobbit. That's funny. (laughs) 
Oh my god. Okay, I went to go visit a couple of genderqueer friends. Um, actually, you should listen. Uh, me, my friend Axel, and I, um, we're, we're going to be doing we, uh, a radio show in in our area. We have a cooperative radio, so it's run all by volunteers. And so Axel and I are going to be doing this show called Query. It's gonna be like two two times a month we'll be doing it um but we got together um with them and their boyfriend and we're all hanging out and whatever and they live on this road called sprout road it's s-p-r-o-a-t sprout and i was like what does that even mean and then we were joking because it's like a super like where i live is like super hippie and so i was like sounds like a sprouted oat and whatever and i was like that's totally some like the new wave of like non-binary kid is gonna be like my name is Sprout and I was like like and then we were making jokes about you know and I've seen that lots on uh groups non-binary groups that I'm on that it's like oh look the gang is here and it's like you know there's Kai and and Raven and like all of these like super I don't know super yeah non-binary names I don't know I think it's great I I I love that we get to name ourselves and I think it's really important and um but I also like to joke about it because like you know my my counselor is not as is trans and their name is Kai and then when I was trying to tell somebody else in the queer community about Kai they were like which Kai? And then it's like, like, how many Kais do you have? Like, you know. Yeah, I saw one meme that was saying like trans guys' uh, names are basically like a lot of the time they're like sort of like old haunted, like ghost, (laughs) like Victorian ghost boy names. And then a lot of like uh, non-binary people's names are like inanimate objects or like parts Mm. of nature. Um, Yeah, totally. I saw I saw another meme that's gone round a little bit um, of this guy on Twitter. He's like, and he he was saying, when you say to a non-binary person, "Oh, what's your pronouns?" and they're like, "Oh, how how did you know that I was non-binary?" and he's like, "Your name is Socks." <laughs> yeah, oh my goodness! Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're we're joking about it, but also, I mean it's okay like you oh yeah no take whatever name feels good for you and stuff and that I don't know it's just like an in joke you know oh yeah definitely like it's not a poking fun thing I love I love that we have this culture and I I think a massive part of the trans plus culture and this is something that I think a lot of allies or, or people who are just not really aware don't necessarily get is that I think so much of our communication is just ridiculous like it's so funny like it's so much satire and taking the piss out of each other um i saw one earlier um tw for genitals from one of my uh trans women friends on facebook and she posted something that says uh i wish i had money but all i have is is this giant cock <laughs> I can stop laughing. I was like, that's absolutely genius. I love that. And I just I mean, obviously there's a serious side to kind of rights and why why it's so important. Um, but I do think humor like is such a good way to learn and express yourself as well. 
Mm -hmm. and uh, I think it's a great way to kind of help people make inroads into the community and like understanding what we're all about because I think it can be a really heavy subject especially when we're talking about like reduced quality of life and things like that and mm -hmm. um, I think it's easier to learn from humour than it can be uh, if somebody's really expressing their, their story and it, it's perhaps a bit negative or you know contains trauma and stuff um and uh yeah i mean so some of the jokes i have i'm sitting there and i'm looking at my phone and seeing some of these things that are being posted by my trans plus friends and i'm having a great time and i want to turn to the person next to me and be like oh my god look at this meme and they're like do i laugh at that i'm not really sure what the rules are or <laughs> i don't get it and i'm like oh so uh yeah I, I think you need a lot of humor in our in our community just just as a coping mechanism but yeah. also also i think it's it's our sort of generations like our our millennial generation and particularly like gen z yeah that's the next one isn't it um i think a lot of us have grown up in a world that's kind of not quite geared towards our success so much uh for a lot of people mm -hmm. and so um you know our outlet is is this kind of extreme humor sometimes and particularly uh stuff that other people may find a bit much like i don't know i think i think the shock factor is um sometimes it verges on hy hysteria but then better out than in <laughs> you've got to yeah it. i was thinking of you know better to laugh than cry because you know it kind of it feels like yeah it's it's a lot i i do think that um that we have to like there's humor and then we also have to hold space for those people who aren't in that place in their life that it's funny right because mm. that's that's definitely a part of being in the trans community is that like there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of um, pain and there's a lot of rejection that happens and um, that not everybody is comfortable to talk about those sorts of things and maybe it's where they are at in their journey. Maybe it's they will never be um, able to joke about those kinds of things, you know, and I know that I was... Um, looking at videos on YouTube yesterday of about dysphoria. So I was trying to um, <clears throat> create some dialogue with a business person in town around dysphoria. And, um, and it really like drove home for me about how all of us in the trans and non-binary community experience dysphoria differently and in um, different intensities and that you know like some people might be really fine with making jokes about their body um or about the parts of their body that they wish that they could change or um and then there are other people that like that's just like horribly triggering and oh yeah um, and then they can't leave the house and you know and it makes them feel um 
a lot of pain and and contemplate self-harm and all this kind of stuff and so it's like <clears throat> I think that those can be funny but only if um sorry I'm just gonna reject this call um yeah I don't know just just that like as with all groups of people that there are those of us who um need a lot of support and those of us who can laugh at ourselves and then there's like a nice in-between and um that all of those feelings are valid your lack of uh dysphoria is valid your like intense dysphoria is valid um and that like if you're offended by a meme that like that's okay too um yeah, but that totally. we also have to allow for people to like as long as it's honestly coming from a trans person like that 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 joke is okay in the way that it's like it's um it's part of somebody's story yeah um, and i think um i i personally find that in the sort of trans plus circles that i'm in that we're quite good i think at the whole boundary thing and autonomy thing because if someone wants to kind of make a joke about themselves it's mm -hmm. very clear that they're expressing themselves but you would never send that to somebody else or apply it to somebody else right and that you take that as that individual expressing themselves but that's not necessarily how everyone feels and i think it's like honoring or keeping in mind that just because that single person is expressing themselves they don't represent anybody else in that moment mm -hmm. and um i definitely recognize that over the years sort of six and a bit years since i realized um who i was in terms of my gender identity mm -hmm. i've gone through many phases and some of them where i felt very raw and very vulnerable and i just couldn't laugh at anything um <coughs> excuse me and uh there are even conversations i couldn't witness happening because it was just so triggering Mm -hmm. And I got to a point now where like yesterday I read a piece that was written by somebody who's gender critical. Mm -hmm. And in the past, like that would have been way too painful for me because it would have really triggered my kind of imposter syndrome and believing that nobody cares and all that kind of thing. But now mm -hmm. I'm in a place where I'm secure enough that I, I can read something like that and consider it and it's not too difficult. Mm hmm. Uh, so yeah I really acknowledge that and I think that you know like you said like every stage is valid and also um, I don't think that there's this end I think sometimes we as a community are really pressured into this end point where we're fine with everything we've made peace with the fact that things are shit for us like mm -hmm. honestly speaking and that we should arrive at some point in at this place where we just get on we don't cause a, um, a scene and we don't mm. stick up for ourselves we don't make we don't make a fuss of it we just sort of take it and um don't stand up for ourselves and kind of get back into being quiet again and mm -hmm. compliant mm -hmm. and i'm very careful that we don't i i think that uh telling people that their their feelings are invalid or that they're being insecure or that they should take responsibility for their own trauma and ultimately like dismissing people who are behaving in any way other than 
in a way that you can have banter with them or they can entertain you mm -hmm. uh i think that that eventually will then lead it, it's just silencing us again isn't it because um whilst we're all uh i i feel i believe that we're, we're all here to contribute lots of different things in life regardless of our identity mm -hmm. Um, it's not always about that and we still need something in, in return we're not just here to contribute and to be entertaining or or to be uh, a resource for other people like we still have a long way to go and I, I think we yeah we do have to be really real about that and frame our sort of um, making fun of things as maybe a coping mechanism or just or just a fleeting moment of self-expression rather than a representation of the whole thing so yeah I, I do think it has to be balanced yeah yeah I like what you're saying about like owning that this is coming from you like this is your own experience because I think that um as soon as we start talking on behalf of the community or on um you know, uh, start using these really like big blanket statements about we and um, we should do these things and blah, 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 that um, that then we disempower so many people who don't have the same lived experience as us. And I also think that speaking on behalf of the community can set us up for yeah for like hurting others um mm. with with our expectations and um i'm just thinking of uh, a very famous trans person who i have fallen out of love with uh, recently and i and i called him out a, on a post um and was like i really think that you have a bunch of internalized transphobia and that you should probably go counseling and that was real like he was really upset and then and everybody else was really upset and I was kind of shocked because I didn't even think he was gonna reply to me and um, I think that that's the danger in speaking on behalf of the community is that we all have work to do like we should all be you know with a good queer counselor who's helping us on passion because like we've all been raised in this like super cis heteronormative um white supremacist colonized society and because of that we've internalized all of these ideas and even in our queerness we have to unlearn them or else we just um you know prop up all of those structures and continue to harm people in our own community with them because mm -hmm. we haven't unpacked those things and we haven't looked at them and um yeah like i think it's really really fucking problematic and if you feel like you know trans people should be this way or um you know or we shouldn't be asking for these kinds of rights or whatever it is that you feel like say i think this right like this is how i feel it goes back to i messages right and like owning your feelings um 
shoulds are bullshit and um you know like everybody has a different life than you everybody's had um different experiences and to try and say that everybody should do what you've done in your life and everything will be fine or whatever is just like so incredibly egocentric to like do you honestly believe that everybody had the life that you've lived like that's just bananas Mm. sounds like something like a middle class white cis het man would say doesn't everybody isn't everybody just fine you're like no (laughs) no we're not yeah Yes, I agree. And and it's something that um, in season one, I interviewed uh, Juno Roche, who's a trans author. And one of the things they said is that in your activism, you have to deprioritize yourself as much as possible in order mm-hmm. to like fairly represent your community or, you know, your, your activism and write stuff. And yeah I think that's that's a really really important part of like representing others is that you're aware of how many variations there are and that you are one of maybe a million Mm -hmm. who feel kind of quite like you do Mm -hmm. (coughs) excuse me and um I think that I think that has to come through in so much and I think that that's something that queer people can do really well because we've examined our ourselves not just our our gender identity but as as a kind of result of that coming up we've often examined so many other things and we have realized just how nuanced our experiences are and I think that if you meet the kind of social standard enough then you've possibly never asked one of those big questions of yourself and then as a result you've never asked or never became aware of all of those other nuances so I I do think that we we potentially have a have a, a really good um, point of view in being able to examine all of those things about ourselves and having having the courage to answer those questions and be honest and say like I don't know or maybe this particular experience of mine is not particularly common or you know we've kind of made peace with the fact we're not going to fit these standard things Mm -hmm. and uh i i really hope that we continue to have a lot more sort of expanding and opening of minds in our community so that we can all um come together with some kind of basic consensus because until then until there's like all these argue whilst there's all these arguments over the kind of nuances and the small things then um we're not going to be taken seriously by i think people who are holding a lot of the power and uh who are like well you know if you can't agree on what you want then what you know come back when you do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah anyway sorry i've i've just realized how long we've been talking for <laughs> probably a while eh? how long have we been talking <laughs> so it is two hours yeah nearly two hours. so i mean we've, we've got plenty of material it might not all make it i'll be honest <laughs> oh no i wouldn't expect i i remember your stuff has been is like around 90 minutes it's probably oh. like max eh? yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 so well that's uh, good because i think that we kind of like meandered through things so i'm sure you could listen to it and then be like ah we're just gonna cut that out yeah, yeah. no it'll be good it'll be good 
So, um, Stephanie, thank you for joining me on the Transsection podcast. Just one more time for people who are looking for help with sex education, gender education. Uh, remind us what your website is again. Yes. So um, I am Becoming Education and Advocacy, and you can find me at www.becomingeducation.ca because I am Canadian. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Good job. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, listeners, remember, if you want any free resources on anything sex and gender education related, you can find them on Stephanie's website. And, uh, and Stephanie is still working on that. So there'll be even more good things to come. So go and have a look. Yes. And lots of uh, online offerings coming up in the next couple of months as well. So workshops, yeah. online workshops and things. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, thank Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Transaction Podcast. I've been your host, Harris Hill. And um, if you haven't followed us on social media, we're on Facebook, the Transaction Podcast, Instagram at Transaction Podcast and Twitter at Transaction P. It'd be lovely to connect with you there. And you can, of course, message us and tell us things or, you know, if you've got any questions you can ask me anything if you like and it doesn't mean I'll answer it if it's really if it's a bit cheeky but I probably would anyway <laughs> just for a laugh so yeah anyway I will see you on the next episode and until then look after yourselves and try and have fun even in this really really weird situation that we're in <laughs>